Welcome to the Self-Helpful Podcast. I'm Kevin Miller, and I partner with our biggest publishers and agencies to bring you the most up-to-date experts and personalities in personal growth, development, and improvement, so you can be in the know and growing into your fullest capacity. In this episode, I'm back with Susan Kane to walk through her personal values and motives and habits and the key areas of life fulfillment so we can hear what's driven and does drive her to write best-selling books and design a life that fulfills her. Susan Kane's book, Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking, was beyond a bestseller. Uh, it spent seven years on the New York Times bestseller list. As of this recording, it's still in the top 500 books on Amazon. Her record-smashing TED Talk has been viewed over 30 million times on TED.com and YouTube. Her new book is called Bittersweet, How Sorrow and Longing Make Us Whole. And it was an instant New York Times bestseller as well. And it was the topic of our first episode together prior to this. Here, we talk through her values and habits in the key areas of life and as she shares about her personal life, she also shares how the research on bittersweet evolved some of her perspectives, starting off with her spiritual and spirituality and faith, which we talk about right at the beginning of this show. And she shares her focus on connecting with others and how her goal is to be a millionaire of time. Really interesting concept. And talks about her love of tennis as well. You can find Susan's book, Bittersweet, How Sorrow and Longing Make Us Whole Anywhere, and connect with her at susankane.net. If you find value from this self-helpful podcast, subscribe, leave a rating, and a review about this specific episode with Susan. And best of all, share something you learned with someone else. It'll help you get more benefit and you'll make someone else's day brighter. You can always connect with me at kevinmiller.co. Next up, Susan Cain's values, motives, and habits. Susan, in our first show together, we hit multiple times, you did, on spirituality on you know religion on the longing on the the something you know greater so that's our first uh piece here is spiritual and looking at what your own values are and i'm curious how they maybe evolved a little bit even as you wrote this book and got into the research and got into the topic and i know you i think you start off the book i pulled it out and you said you mentioned my passage from agnosticism to dot 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 not faith exactly um you don't have to believe i I don't know if i wrote this or you you don't have to believe in specific concepts of god uh, in order to be transformed by a spiritual longing um, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's from the book. Okay. That's from mm-hmm. the book. I, I had it yeah. in quotes and I thought, gosh, sometimes I get my notes mixed up. Um, but, but that was interesting. So tell me about, tell me about just you personally. Yeah. Where are you? That's an interesting statement and obviously was worthy enough for you to put in the book that my passage from agnosticism to not faith exactly, but that, that this, that you have had a journey here. Yeah, very much so. I mean, so I was, um, I was raised in a, pretty religious household. Um, my grandfather was an Orthodox rabbi and I was mm. raised Orthodox, but, um, uh, but it didn't really stick with me. And I have been pretty much all my life and remain an agnostic. Um, and so that's just, before I started writing this book, that was just the way I thought about my relationship to religion. 
But the whole reason I started on this on this path, this bittersweet path, was because of the experience that I kept having when I would listen to sad or yearning or minor key music. Um, and it was this experience that, as we talked about, that was not not really about sadness at all. I, I would more feel like this state of of love and like a, a sense of touching the heavens. That's the only way I, I can put it when, when I hear that kind of music. Um, and I just, I wanted to understand what the heck was going on there. And what I realized and what, what I found out through researching like the wisdom and artistic traditions of the centuries is that this is a kind of fundamental state of humanity hmm. that the state of longing, the state of longing for a kind of fundamental, you know, love and a fundamental union and a fundamental state of beauty. And, um, and that what I was, I, I believe that what I, what I experience and what I feel when I hear that kind of music is what many people are experiencing when they talk about God. Um, and not everyone will agree with me on this. I'm just giving you my personal take. I, yeah. I, I feel like these are different manifestations, different languages for a similar experience in which yeah. you're no longer uh, bound in the, for a moment in time, at least you're not bound in the prison of the self. Yeah. And when I hear that kind of music also, I, I often feel for a few minutes afterwards, I feel like I can contemplate the fact that the people that I love will not live forever and I will not live forever. And it feels like it's perfectly okay. It's like, there's this sense for a moment of total equanimity about what everything that is. Um, so yeah, I guess that's how I, that's how I now define it. I, I, you know, I think it's a pathway and probably if we talk again in five years or 10 years, I'll probably say something a little bit different or farther along the pathway or something. But, um, is it fair to say then that you're as far as then a, a practice is, I mean, you obviously do. I mean, it's part of your book. You practice practices. You habitually, you routinely engage in these moments. You talk about music. I'm sure there are other others, but you, where you proactively engage in those in order to have this feeling no different than somebody who may go to church, who may go pray, who may go whatever they're doing it in order to experience the, the divine, or as we talked about in the first, you said it in the first show, it was uh, something the effect of, you know, something bigger, bigger than the moment, um, beyond, beyond this moment, beyond what we see in the present. Yeah, very much. And I feel it when, whenever I have access to those states, I like go to them, you know, I, 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 I would love to be in it all day long if I could, but, um, yeah. but I, I think it's wonderful to know for each person. I, my, my sense is that there are gateways that deliver us to those kinds of states yeah. of being and that they're all over the place. And it's really helpful to know which gateways call out to, to us personally the most. Um, and they're different at different times of life. I think I wrote about this in the book that um, I, I had one state in my life where I was like in between careers and in between loves. And I, I was like really in this sort of state of deep transition. Um, and I was living in this incredibly, nondescript neighborhood in Manhattan, really at sea. But it so happened that um, that the building where I lived was 
located across the street from this tiny, beautiful, like miraculously beautiful little jewel of a church that mm-hmm. was sandwiched between the skyscrapers. This tiny little 19th century church with a little beautiful garden, skyscrapers on either side. Um, and I wasn't working at the time because I had just kind of left uh, my career as a corporate lawyer and I didn't know what I was doing next. So I was just wandering around. And, I, and I, this was when I was in my early 30s. And I would spend hours in this church, you know, and just absorbing the, the everything of it. And so I was in that state when I was in, in that church for that moment in time of my life. And I, yeah, I, I think we all have access to these gateways. Yeah. I, I spent time in my 19, 20, 21 year old, uh, racing bikes over in, in Europe didn't have a whole lot of place for spirituality, a lot of thoughts for it at the, mm-hmm. at the time. And I went to these old churches, though, these big monolithic, you know, uh, stone churches. And I think I just wanted to touch something sacred yeah. uh, that was missing from my life. You know, you mentioned gateways, and uh, there's a great book that, if folks you want to check out, it's called Windows of the Soul. It's probably 30 years old, 20 years old, I don't know, by a guy named Ken Geyer. And he talks about that ways that we all experience a, a spiritual moment, whether it's music, whether it's the mountains, whether it's uh, you know a church service, whatever it may be. And it's a neat um, dig into some of the things that may speak to you. And yeah, as we talked about, give, give some permission uh, to find it in some unorthodox ways, possibly. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll just say one yeah. other thing about it, which is that um, I think that the more you find those gateways and the more time you spend in those states of being, yeah. the more you start to become aware of how like ridiculously miraculous everything around us is, yeah. you know, and just the state of like, it's all really sacred, like regardless of whether you're an atheist or believer, like put, put those kinds of questions aside. It's all sacred. Everything around us is it, it's incredible. Um, and that's, that's an apprehension that we lose touch with in everyday life as, especially as we grow older and, you know, you lose the sense of the wonder and the miraculousness of it all. But I think it's important to proactively tune into that. Agreed. Agreed. And and your book, Bittersweet, I think really does a great job of calling us to that. Well, the next one here, Susan, is relationships. And my gosh, I mean, I would, I would pull that out as a pillar of your book of looking at the, especially the melancholic temperament and uh, even sadness as such a, you know, connection, a point. And so mm-hmm. with relationships, you speak to that a lot, but let me start there again, just with you personally, that with, uh, your values with relationships, but again, I'm curious even has, as you've seen them evolve through this study on well, quiet and bittersweet. And as you've done that, how has it affected your relationships and how you go about relating? Mm, yeah. I mean, I don't know. From the time I was very young, I uh, well, I've always been a huge reader and I read um, this book, E.M. Forster. Sorry, I read the books of E.M. Forster and he has this one aphorism that he's kind of famous for. It's two words and the two words are only connect, wow. only connect. And ever since, like the moment I read that, I was like, oh my gosh, yes, that's it. Those are, that's like all anybody needs to know about life, only connect. Um, and I look for those connections everywhere. Um, 
and I focus on the ones that go deepest for me. Okay. And for and and I think it's different for everyone, but the ones that are deepest for me. On the one hand, it's my family, like my husband and kids. Um, like I'm quite happy to just like hang out with them most of the time. I don't really, ha- I mean, I, I have lots of friends, but I don't have many kind of daily social needs beyond that. But then I also love like the connection between writer and reader, you know, for me or between musician and listener or whatever, like those, those are connections that take place between people who may never actually meet in quote real life ever. And they may never even have lived at the same time. You know, the connection could be between someone who wrote something down 2000 years ago that rocks your world now. And I value those connections so incredibly deeply um, because those can be really deep soul connections, Yeah, uh, you know, in a way that an everyday interaction might not be. Um, so that's kind of what I'm in it for. <laughs> I'm in it for those kinds of connections. And, uh, you know, every time I find that with my own readers, I love it. Like the best thing in the world to me is getting letters from readers who are like, oh my gosh, that thing that you described, I have felt that so deeply. And I'm like, oh yeah, you too, you too. Like that, that feeling of of sharing the same experience. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. I'm, so I'm curious. That's what I focus on. I'm curious with your boy. How old are your boys? You got two boys. Yeah, they're 12 and 14. How have you? I shared a story in the first show about new information I got on attachment, you know, and mm-hmm. not fixing mm-hmm. the ouchie, but just, you know, uh, hugging the kid. Um, when you look at connectedness, and especially in relation to sadness, as you talk mm-hmm. about in the book, how has that altered your parenting style and your efforts to connect well with your boys? Specifically, it's interesting with boys because as, mm-hmm. as we talked about also, that's not generally, we don't, men don't go to emotions, period, and especially not the negative ones. So now you've got two boys whose mom is, you know, writing a book on bittersweet <laughs> and hanging out yeah. with Brene Brown. And how do you, how have you been able to bring that in? as a parent? I don't know. I mean, I guess because this is so much like what I'm doing every day and they know it, it's just become part of like everyday life. So I don't know. It's a funny thing. You know, they're, they're like these little athletes and they're living in a kind of, um, kind of typical boy world, I think, where you don't talk about that stuff so much, but then they like come home and like, you know, there's mom writing about bittersweetness and they know that. And they'll like, I, I, I gave one of them, one of them needed to write a thank you card, like right before they left for camp. And I gave them the stash of cards that I had, you know, so that they could use one. And my son was like, oh yeah, that's a really bittersweet card. You know, it was like a picture of a, a tree that was rendered in blue. So I guess... I just feel like that's kind of normalized for them because yeah. they live with it in the everyday. Yeah. Um, I don't know. You know, I do feel like there's a way in which, because I'm so immersed in this stuff, I also think it helps me parent because when I have those like acute, bittersweet sensations, you know, like dropping them off at camp and, mm. you know, that, that's a moment where you're like acutely aware of the right. passage of time and that because the moment that you drop them off for camp is really a microcosm of 
the fact that they're going to grow up and move forth to their own lives. Um, you know, I, I shed the tear in the moment, but there's also a part of me that's just deeply aware that this is the way things are and the way things must be and the way things should be. So I don't resist it so much. Yeah. And I think they know that. So I think they don't feel the burden that kids might feel of like, oh, this is really hard on my parent. Because I think they know hmm. that and my husband is like this too. I think they know that we sort of deeply accept and wish for them to grow and move forth. I hope they know it. I think they do. I also appreciate you mentioning the connectedness that we feel in a relationship that may never meet like that with, yeah. a, with an artist. Uh, music, I think similar to you, that's one of my main points of, of beauty and pain and I'm so grateful for the artists out there that do what they do, that I get to listen to, that I get to, we have nights where I'll just pull up, I'll look for live videos. I, I just got a new artist that I've, I found, discovered. I want to see if uh -huh. I can find them playing this song live. Mm -hmm. And we've had moments where we'll play it two, three times, you know, in, in a row and just feel it. And yeah, connected this, that I feel to somebody who has no idea who I am. Yeah. Thank you for giving that some validity. I appreciate that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's probably something I think about extra because, you know, the, all the work I've done with introversion. So I'm like very aware of the fact that, you know, like our society would tell you, well, humans are meant to connect. So therefore, you know, you should go to a lot of parties, let's say. Right. Um, but like, there's a lot of people who don't tend to find that sense of connection at a party. They mm -hmm. They actually might feel kind of bored or lonely or unhappy. And it doesn't mean that they don't that they don't experience the joy of connection in other kinds of fora. And mm -hmm. so I feel like we have to open up what we mean by connection and where do we find it. Yes. Thank you. Mine won't be at a party either. Um. <laughs> Health and wellness, uh, Susan. Mm -hmm. And th this is one that, you know, with anybody who's, who's trying to be uh, creative as you are, you know that you are at the mercy of your body and mind and how it's functioning. So tell me about some of the values for health and wellness to do what you want to do. Oh gosh. Well, I mean, I will say I went through a period of time in my life where I barely exercised. I felt like I didn't have time to. Hmm. Um, so, you know, like I used to be a corporate lawyer and it was, it was working around the clock and it was really hard to then. And you know, and then when you have young children, it's very hard to, anyway, though, I've finally made the switch out of that period of time. So now I'm in a, and, and for the past years, I've been in a time where exercise just feels like an everyday thing to me. Mm. And I'll have a day here and there where, where I don't do it, but it's, uh, it's pretty much just a part of my life that I love. And uh, can I you know, ask what, what's your, yeah. what's your chosen exercise? Yeah, I love tennis. Like, ah. I love it. So I will play it every chance I get. And um, I also love yoga. And so I'll do that. And and then during the pandemic, when it was hard to do both those things, I started just doing um, HIIT, you know, like high intensity yeah. interval training. I sure. would just do videos on TV. And so I would often just start my morning doing one of those. 
So just different things. How about, but, but, tennis, but tennis is the pure joy. Tennis is a pure of joy. all of them. Beauty. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, yeah. I, lo- I love that because when I hear something like that, I think you probably don't feel like you're exercising. You're just out playing. Uh, totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. That's yeah. And mo- you get into that state of flow where, yes. you know, you, yeah, it's just fantastic. Beautiful. And most sustainable exercise is when it doesn't feel like exercise. Absolutely. Uh, and I, I, I think it's actually like a positive gateway drug to exercise because I got back into exercise through, through loving tennis. But then once I was in that, it was much easier for me to then do the kind of more obligatory forms of exercise, like yes. lifting or whatever, because I was just like then in that state of mind. That's uh, that makes sense. I haven't thought about it that way, but yeah, lifting weights and and doing that type. It's not my favorite. I just rather do endurance stuff, run and, and ride. But as I'm doing those, it makes it easier to drop down and do my push ups and pull ups and dips. Exactly. And yeah. That, that yeah. makes sense. How about on the nutrition side, Susan, anything that you're, uh, that you follow there or adhere to? Um, I mean, I, uh, I do my best. Uh, I try to have a green, we call it the green drink in yeah. my house. And I try to have one of those every day. Um, so I find like making green drinks and making smoothies and things like that is the easiest way to yeah. eat healthy for me. Um, cause you can kind of throw it all in and get it in all at once and enjoy it while you're doing it. Um, and I would say my, my nemesis is my love of chocolate. Like oh. I love chocolate so much that I never go a day without it. And I know that sounds like a really harmless type of vice, but I eat way too much of it. So that's the, <laughs> <laughs> so that's the thing I always have to work well, we on. We would have fun hanging out because <laughs> I can't remember a day I haven't had chocolate, uh, I've got, exactly. I've got a new store started carrying uh, dark chocolate covered almonds are a favorite of mine and uh-huh. they've got it with sea salt. Oh my gosh. It's, oh yeah. That yeah, sounds really good. Really hard really good. not to eat the whole thing, but uh, I feel you on that. Next one, Susan is the mind, uh, just mental health. And I mean, to a degree, that is what your book is about to, for me. I mean, I, I'm taking mm-hmm. it that way yeah. of the health the self-care of Mm -hmm. feeling my emotions, not being overtaken by them, but feeling them and allowing them. And again, we ended the show, the first show together on permission to feel the pain and the ache along with uh, the beauty. So you obviously engage in aspects of serving your mental health. So aside from listening to Leonard Cohen, though, tell me more (laughs) about what you do. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's this poem by um, by Rumi, the the great 12th century Sufi poet, who happens to be like the best selling poet in the U.S. Um, and anyway, he he has this poem that talks about how uh, he says every day we wake up confused and frightened, and um, and that instead of going, this is the way he's putting it. He's saying instead of going immediately into your study and drawing down a book, like like basically instead of going straight to work, he says, um, we should, we should be engaging with beauty every morning. Um, Mm -hmm. he, and the way he puts it is let the beauty we love be what we do. And I've really taken that to heart. So for example, I, especially while I was writing the book, but I'm doing it still, Mm -hmm. I would start it. I, I, I started following all these artists on my social media and my, my feeds are full of art now. Hmm. And so I start most of my work mornings by choosing a favorite piece of art and then sharing it with my community. And 
it's amazing because like that that's now attracted all these other people who like to start their days that way. And so it's a community of kindred spirits that's centered around art. And I've just found it to be an incredible grounding practice for my day. And it wasn't like I started it off like, now I will do something mentally healthy. It was just something I kind of started and it's been wonderful. I looked at your, one of your social media pages and saw one you recently did. It was just a park bench under a tree. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And it was beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I, I think we, right now we're so we popularized gratitude journals, you know, get up in the morning mm-hmm. and think of something you're grateful for, go to bed. Um, which is, is awesome. I tend towards, in essence, I think what you were saying to, to see beauty. And for me, I have the privilege of stepping out on my back deck in the middle yeah. of the national forest and it just fills my soul. And daily I'm out on a trail somewhere. I was out for six and a half miles today out in the middle of nowhere. And it just feeds, and, and it is, it is gratitude. It is the beauty mm-hmm. is gratitude. And I hadn't thought about it in that way. So I'm going to, I'm going to give people permission to, uh, along <laughs> with, or instead of your gratitude journal and sitting there trying to think of something to go look at, at beauty, we're, we're, we're evoking, I think the same feeling, wouldn't you say? Oh, absolutely. I would totally say that. Um, and what I would also say about on, on the point of the gratitude is that, you know, for some people, it might be like the act of like sitting down and having to write it into their journal that might feel laborious. I don't know if it's something I would do, but I do like all the time feel very grateful and I'll, I'll often exclaim over it out loud. Like I'll often say to my boys, like, oh, cause I really, I, we love our house and like where we live and often say, oh my gosh, we're just so lucky to live here. Um, you know, we go, we, we live in a really quiet street, so it's really easy to go out and, and play catch. And like, I'm always saying, we're so lucky to live on the street where we could just play catch and there are very few cars coming. And so I, so I think there's a way to incorporate gratitude into just your natural day as yeah. opposed to making it now as a thing that I must do. I appreciate that. Sometimes I go through cycles and I'll, I do journal a lot and sometimes I don't, I let myself have, have seasons and cycles Mm -hmm. of doing uh, those things. So yeah, I like giving people another, another option. Um, Next one, Susan is, is just work and career and business. And yeah, Mm -hmm. I'm interested to hear how, where your value and practices are there. Cause you've obviously made a significant shift. You've said a couple of times during the show. And I think the other, that you were a corporate lawyer yeah. um, today, you're an author. Most people don't know the corporate lawyer side. They know Susan Cain, author of quiet and now bittersweet mm-hmm. and, and whatnot. So you've made some changes and I'm sure you're hit with a lot of opportunities. And so where are the values that give you your own boundaries and pathway with work? Well, I mean, I think the greatest privilege in the world, if you're lucky enough to have it, is to wake up every day feeling excited to do the work that you're going to do that day. Mm -hmm. And so that's basically my lodestar. Um, So I do feel like the luckiest person in the world that I have this career that I love so much. Um, There's that advice that Steve Jobs once gave about how... um, 
if you wake up too many days in a row, kind of dreading what you're about to do at work that day, that's a sign that it's time to make a change. Yeah. And I, I really adhered to that. So every time I feel that for too long, I know that I'm kind of doing the wrong thing. Um, so yeah, that, that's really the lodestar for me, but I'm also aware as I say this, that like, I'm incredibly lucky to have the career that I do. So what I would say like when I made that switch from the corporate world to the creative world, I never really thought I was going to be able to make a living at writing. Hmm. So what I did was I, I set up a little freelance business on the side. I, I started teaching people negotiation skills, which was something I had learned how to do from my lawyer days. And it wasn't really what I loved doing, but I felt like it was good and helpful work. Um, and I fully expected that I was probably going to be doing something like that forever to pay my bills because I never thought the creative stuff would would really generate an income. Yeah. Um, but I do think it's really important to have that kind of a, a plan B that pays your bills because, well, number one, you have to pay your rent. But even from a creative point of view, it's hard to do your best work if you're stressed out yeah. about how you're going to make ends meet. Yeah. So I feel like our culture is often sending us this message of like, you know, go for it, you know, go for your dream. Uh, l- let, let all the practical stuff go. Mm. If you care enough about your dream, follow that. And I don't think it has to be so either or. I appreciate you saying that I have in the past come from more of the either or of mm-hmm. you know, no plan B, you just go and do it. And, and today, um, sometimes terror works, but man, it can wear you out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, there, maybe there's a place for it, but I've, I've kind of passed that. Uh, I like having options these days. So, uh, yeah. And I mean, it may depend on your personality. Cause I, I said this to, to someone not long ago and he was like, Oh no, 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 not for me. For me, this guy was saying, you know, it's the, the anxiety and the terror really is what keeps me going. And spurs me to do my best work yeah and i'm like okay you know if that's what works for him that's what's working for him at that moment yeah so i think self-awareness is good yeah and again i relate to it i i I would attest to being able to harness the uh the pressure but Mm -hmm. i don't know that long term it's the most sustainable thing for your mental mental health honestly Uh, yeah yeah i agree with that yeah it's taken a lot of teaching to get me to say that but um Money, finances, wealth, uh, how, tell us about that with, um, I mean, you talked about, you've had success in a couple of different careers, but where, tell me about your values around money. Well, I mean, I guess I've been at different stages of that at different times of life, but I don't know my, my bottom line feeling or like what I would say to my kids is, Mm -hmm. you know, make sure you're making enough that you can pay your bills and not have to stress about it because stressing about it is hard. Um, It's a hard way to live. Um, But beyond that, I always think of this one when my husband and I were first dating, we went to see this movie about the poet, Billy Collins. It was documentary. And there was this just offhand remark that he made in the movie where he talked about how he is a millionaire in time. That's the way he put it. He said, I'm a millionaire in time, meaning he doesn't make a lot of money, but he 
gets to spend his time the way he likes to spend it. And that makes him a millionaire in time. And that phrase stayed with us forever. So we always talk about being a millionaire in time. And that's what I think is the real pot of gold. And I I don't want to say this in a Pollyanna-ish way to say that money doesn't matter because, you know, basic money for health and your house and everything, make sure that's taken care of. But beyond that, to be a millionaire in time, that's the real gold. It's one of the most interesting answers I've ever had to that question in the three or four years I've done this. Um, Thank you. Uh, That's a takeaway um, from this. I want to be a millionaire in time. Yeah. And you know what? I'll tell you another thing, which is like when, when quiet, my book got really successful, you know, I had a million opportunities to do this thing and this thing and this thing. And and some of them I pursued and I realized that they were robbing me of my free time and they were robbing me of my ability to spend time as I wished to. And I thought, what the heck did I just do? I like traded, I, you know, I, I just kind of won the lottery by having this wonderfully successful book and now I've traded it away. Hmm. Um, I've traded away that good luck um, for the wrong kind of life. Yeah. So then I made some adjustments. Yeah. That's um, inspiring to hear, honestly, Susan. Last one here is, you know, achievements and interests and self-care and play and fun. It's just some of those things that fall outside of the productivity uh, aspects of our lives. Though I've, I've already got insight. I know tennis is, uh, yeah. is, is some play for you and, uh, and music is something you're prone to sit down and enjoy, I guess. What are some of the other things that you do? Just, yeah, I, I, I really like putting it in that framework that it's not a, well, I mean, again, anything that benefits you is productive, but you know what I mean? Especially when we're talking about work and home and whatever that there were, I'm not doing this for a productive reason. I'm doing this for me. Yeah. 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 So, um, it's the things you just said. And as I said before, just hanging out with my family is just the greatest. Um, I, And I just mean the hanging out. Like, I don't mean going and doing something specific. I just love the feeling of everyone kind of being around. And we might all be doing our own thing, but just the feeling of it is the best. Um, But I would also say, like, I I really love my work so much that when we go on family vacation, I always have to have, like, two or three hours a day where I'm just, like, sitting just me with my laptop and my cup of coffee and my chocolate and everything and getting into that zone that like deep flow zone. I love that zone so much. Um, So there are aspects of what you have to do as a writer that do burn me out, you know, like lots of publicity and that kind of thing doesn't nourish me. That's that that's burnout time. But, but the, but the basic part of the job, I like, love it. I love, love, love it. So that's actually what I want to be doing. Anything else that would fall into the self-care things that you just do for yourself? Mm, I don't know. I love taking walks. Um, we got a puppy two years ago, Mm -hmm. so just walking her is great. Um, yeah, I don't know, I guess. And this too comes from like the deep state of mind that I got from working on quiet, which is as an introvert in an extroverted culture, Mm -hmm. you get into a habit of not spending your time the way you actually want to, because you're so often spending it in a more extroverted way 
than what your true preferences would be. So I've really kind of tried to adjust myself out of that. Um, so I try as best I can to spend spend my time exactly the way I want to spend it. And it's usually like a lot more mellow than what would be um, typically advised. But, you know, I'm happy as a clam that way. Yeah. Well, and I appreciate that as a fellow introvert on, on pretty far on that spectrum. Susan, thank you. Thank you for sharing again, just some of the behind the scenes, authenticity of your life. And, uh, it is, uh, bittersweet. How's that? So uh, <laughs> thank you so much. Thanks for being with me again. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Kevin, for having me. All right, friends, again, you can find Susan Cain's book, Bittersweet, How Sorrow and Longing Make Us Whole Anywhere, and connect with her at susancain.net. Thank you for choosing to tune into this self-helpful podcast episode. If you got value, please subscribe, leave a review, and mention this specific episode with Susan. Thank you for letting me walk with you, and I sincerely hope I've helped you Help yourself.